My dad's name is Tim. Glad she got that one right. But uh, he is uh, 30 years old. He is as big as an elephant. He has brown hair and black eyes. His favorite food is fish. <clears throat> Not sure. I hate fish. I don't know. What she got. So, like last week, Steph made fish, and I said it was okay, and that was its favorite food. Uh, your favorite, uh, his favorite color is blue. He likes to go to Starbucks. Uh, for fun, he likes to go on a date with me. My favorite thing to do with my dad is go to Starbucks with him. I love my dad because he is always there for me, and he gives me snuggles and hugs. From Hannah, my dad's name is Tim. He is 19 years old. He is as big as a tiger. He has black hair and black eyes. His favorite food is salad. His favorite color is green like salad. There's something that was playing in her mind, I guess. He likes to go to Costco. Uh, for fun, he likes to play with me. My favorite thing to do with my dad is play at the library. Uh, I love my dad because he gives me licky kisses and he likes cute puppies. <laughs> so, that's my daughter's. Uh, yeah, so if uh, it is Father's Day, if you haven't called your dad yet, uh, you know, you should probably do that at some point. But uh, I'm so glad you uh, came to join us this morning. We are in the on week two of a four-week series called Finding Jesus. Uh, and uh, our series, it's, uh, we're looking at how do we know what we know, the, the journey to get to the destination. How do we know what we know? Uh, we're looking at the proof of what we believe. And so last week, last week we looked at the first proof, uh, which... Uh, is usually the easiest for Christians to wrap their head around, and that's the Bible. The Bible is the proof. Uh, it's the primary proof of, uh, of our Christian faith. Uh, and last week, uh, but last week we looked at the words of Jesus uh, in John where he said, uh, it is actually possible to be the most prolific Bible student, have the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation memorized, know everything that it says, and still not be a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, and I challenge us that we need to think about how we read and teach the Bible because it is more than just a book. The Bible is actually a channel or a conduit to Jesus. And if we read the Bible in its proper place, it actually decentralizes itself and it puts Jesus into the center because Jesus is the center of our faith. Uh, and so this week we are going to uh, be taking another step down this road uh, in this idea that, and so today we're going to kind of take the next step, which is scripture is the primary proof, but is not the only proof. Uh, now I know, again, as I said last week, I know when I say this statement, some of you get a little, uh, makes your, uh, you know, your, your hairs on their neck stand up, you get a little squirmy, because Tim, what are you saying that the Bible is the primary proof, but not the only proof? And uh, I want you to rest assured that this is not... Uh, Timology, or this is not Tim's ideas about what things uh, are like. In fact, this is a very, uh, well, not a very old idea, but it's an idea that is actually a part of the EMC in its earliest formations. Uh, and some of you may, and some of you will probably, most of you will not know the origins of our denomination, but we like to describe it as we are a stream that has kind of collected a lot of streams along the way. Uh, there's a lot of uh, different 
different groups that have kind of merged together to come in to form the Evangelical Missionary Church of Canada. Uh, but the two primary ones that uh, have uh, come together, and you may have guessed them based on their name, it's the Evangelical Church of Canada and the Missionary Church of Canada merged in uh, 93 and became the Evangelical Missionary Church of Canada. But uh, what you should know is that uh, instrumental in both of those streams separately back in the 1800s was both groups were actually formed through a radical encounter with Methodism in the Great Awakening. And in fact, it was a group of Mennonites. We are essentially a group of Mennonites that encountered the move of the Holy Spirit that was going on in the Great Awakening through the work of John Wesley and others. And we were radically transformed so much that we actually had to, in a lot of cases, leave our Mennonite communities to form what we called New Mennonites, uh, and that was the formation. In fact, uh, we were so radically uh, impacted by Methodism that in certain circles, especially out uh, west, we were actually referred to as German Methodists. And the reason for that was is because in the Methodist church, the bishops had made, uh, they had made a unilateral decision that all mass had to be uh, performed in English. Uh, and however, most of our work were in Mich- uh, Mennonite communities uh, that were German heritage. And so we wanted to perform our, continue to perform our services in German. And so we couldn't really actually join the Methodists uh, because of that little technicality. And so we actually became referred to as German Methodists. Uh, but uh, that continued to develop as uh, we came into more and more of what our ethos is. And we became the Evangelical Church out West and the Missionary Church out East. And they joined together becoming the Evangelical Missionary Church of Canada. I know I have already put half of you to sleep with that lovely little introduction. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that uh, inherent in our formation, in our DNA as EMCC, is this idea that there are other proofs, there are other ways that Jesus speaks to us, there are other ways that the truth of God penetrates our heart. It is primarily through scripture, but there are other ways that we can know for certain that uh, what we believe is true. And so uh, this morning, today, uh, I want to look at the first of those other proofs, and it is tradition. And so uh, that's kind of an interesting proof to talk about, because in general, we live in a world uh, without a lot of traditions, to say. You may have some traditions around how you celebrate Christmas, uh, maybe some sort of family tradition, some family vacation that you routinely take, but on a whole, we live pretty devoid of tradition. Um, if you, cam- if you uh, came to Canada and you have a different cultural background, you may have brought some uh, different cultural traditions with you, uh, but what we will often find is that you know those traditions tend to be challenged by our Western culture because our Western culture is not traditional. In fact, we almost pride ourselves on being not traditional. And it's in this ideology of new is better, isn't it? Right? We all can't wait for the next thing, the next gadget, the next uh, show, the next movie, the next great thing. I mean, think about that. We have phones that we are, that are obsolete before we can actually pay off the contract to buy the phone, right? Like we are constantly trying to get the newest thing, the next thing, the better thing. 
Um, in fact, even around Christmas, you'll hear it, uh, you know, the newest the newest, hottest trends that are going on. And uh, even actually this week, as I was listening to uh, some morning, you know, morning news shows, they're talking about what is the newest or, uh, you know, the trends for Father's Day gifts this year. Uh, and so we have this constant newness that we're seeking. Uh, but it's not only concentrated to physical things, the new physical things, but actually we no longer have the same intergenerational relationships that facilitate tradition. In fact, in a recent poll uh, done by the Birmingham Science, uh, Birmingham Science City, when asked uh, a pressing question. So this is not this is not where to get a cup of coffee. This is not you know some minor thing. This is a pressing question for kids under the age of fifteen. Fifty four percent of them will Google that question before they ask their parents or their teachers. If that's not a frightening stat as a parent, I don't know what is. That's under fifteen years old will Google it before they will ask their parents. In fact, another study showed that by the time a a teenager graduates high school, they will have spent more time watching TV than they did in the classroom. See, we live in a world where parents and grandparents are no longer the primary influence into kids' lives. They're no longer the primary place that kids turn to when they're looking for information and when they're uh, interested in knowing the truth about something. And uh, the reality is, is that the, the picture inside the church isn't a whole lot better. In fact, uh, for most of us, uh, painting with a broad stroke here, broad brush, evangelicals, we're pretty bad at tradition. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, even those of us who grew up in a high church or a mainline church background, like I went to, uh, I think I've said this a number of times, but I I grew up, I went to Lutheran school. So we had like actual Reformation uh, like classes, like we we studied who Luther was and his doctrines and his teachings and his catechisms and the traditions of uh, Lutheranism. But uh, even those of us who have that mainline kind of uh, background in us, uh, if we're honest, the most we can trace our traditions back is about 500 years. Uh, if we were really honest, we would probably recognize that they actually only go back about 70 to 80 years. In fact, if you think about the things, even that some of the things you can find around this room, like uh, the communion table was instituted by Zwingli in the 16th century. The long pastoral prayer before the sermon was introduced in the 17th century by the Puritans. The idea of the sinner's prayer uh, that Billy Graham introduced in the 1950s, along with bowing your heads uh, with closing eyes uh, and raising a hand in response to a salvation call, uh, was again instituted by Billy Graham in the 20th century. The idea that we would pass the offering plates to collect the offering was only introduced in 1662. That there would then be music played during that offering was introduced in the 20th century by the Pentecostals. Wearing our Sunday's best uh, in the late 18- was introduced in the late 18th century to the mid-19th century with the emergence of the middle class who for the first time could actually afford a second pair of clothes. Right? Before that, you only had one set of clothes. You didn't have a Sunday's best to wear. 
uh, the clerical collar introduced in 1865 by Reverend Dr. Donald McLeod. Sunday school was introduced in 1730 by Robert Rakes. In fact, though, it wasn't actually a for religious instruction like we know it today. Uh, it was introduced to instruct uh, poor children who actually spent their weeks working in the factories. Uh, they, would, they would teach them on Sundays just the basic education building blocks. And that was the uh, foundation of our Sunday school. And lastly, youth pastors, I mean, those were instituted by Jesus, right? I think that we can all agree, absolutely essential. Uh, I believe Jesus said in the Sermon Mount, right, blessed are those who employ youth pastors, uh, for they will always have sermon backups. Uh, no, they were introduced uh, urban churches in the 1930s and 40s uh, with this new uh, introduction of the sociological term called teenagers. We didn't have teenagers roughly before the 30s and 40s. Uh, I mean, we had people that age, but they weren't identified as teenagers. Uh, in the 30s and 40s, began to be identified as teenagers, and we said, oh, we should probably hire a pastor for them. <laughs> and so urban churches began to hire them in about the 30s and 40s. See, we don't have a lot of traditions that, uh, you know, we can talk about going back, you know, thousands of years. Uh, and the ones that we have aren't really that old, uh, and nor do we often celebrate them. I mean, you are probably well aware that, you know, there are traditions that this church doesn't maintain. Right? We, there's lots of traditions out there, and if you go into different churches, you'll find them. But we don't maintain all those traditions. Uh, and the problem... And, and this is a problem because tradition actually serves as a proof to what we believe is true and reliable. And that's where we're going this morning. So I, I want to invite you to open up your uh, Bibles to 2 Timothy. And it's uh, chapter 1. And it will be on the screen, but if you'd like to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Read it aloud. That's 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Just to set the scene for you, the book, well, it's not, we call it a book, but it's actually a letter. Uh, the letter is written to, as you might have guessed, Timothy. And uh, beyond just having an awesome name, uh, Timothy was uh, Paul's missionary buddy. Uh, and actually, buddy is probably not the right word. He was basically, he, Paul was Timothy's missionary mentor. Uh, so Paul met Timothy while he was on a missionary journey, and Timothy went with Paul. Uh, and in fact, Paul would actually send Timothy out to different churches, uh, sometimes with success, sometimes not with success. Uh, and we can read about that through Acts and uh, even some of the inferences that are in some of the other letters Paul wrote. Uh, but to this letter, uh, he's writing to Timothy, and he's writing to Timothy from Rome. And the reason he's in Rome is because he's in prison. And uh, this is actually uh, the last time he's in prison because he was, <clears throat> excuse me, he was killed after uh, this one. So, um, I say this one because he was in prison a couple times. <laughs> but uh, So this is the last time he's in prison. So he's writing to Timothy, and there is kind of a, a somber note to this letter as he's writing it because there is a recognition by Paul that this is probably one of the last letters he's going to write to Timothy. This is probably one of the last things he's going to do uh, because he is aware that his situation in prison in Rome is not getting better. 
and so he writes to Timothy, who is in the church of Ephesus, uh, and Paul is warning about the persecution that will come. He's saying, I'll summarize it here off the top, he's basically saying, look, I am in prison because I have paid the price, I am being persecuted for my faith. You should expect that after I am dead, the same persecution will find you in Ephesus or wherever you are. And so Paul starts in uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words. That idea, the pattern of the sound words. Um, some of us, when you hear that, you may be instantly thinking that what he's talking about is the Bible, the, the, the teachings. But he's not, he could be talking about the Old Testament by inference, but he's, he's probably not. Uh, the pattern of sound words, because the reason he's not is because the Bible doesn't exist yet. Uh, Paul's still writing the letter. <laughs> but uh, uh, he's uh, still writing to Timothy. The, the letter, uh, the Bible, New Testament, as we know it, doesn't exist yet. Uh, and so what he's saying is, follow the example of the teachings I have given to you. So I've, I've given you some teachings. The teachings I have given to you, follow that example. And I think that we can actually, I know it doesn't say this in the scripture, it doesn't use this term, but we can term it tradition. In fact, if you actually do a word search on tradition in the Bible, it only pulls up a couple references, one or two, and in different translations, sometimes those don't even exist because they will be uh, translated tradition or teaching. They kind of interchange them. But, uh, so the idea of the sound, uh, sound patterns of teaching, he's getting at this idea of tradition. And see, I recognize when I say that concept of tradition, and I, when I say that term, tradition, I'm sure piles of imagery flooded into your mind, even as I said that. You were probably brought back to, uh, maybe if you grew up in a mainline church, those images of being in church and having to, uh, as a kid, I remember as a kid, uh, I was in a church that uh, was a little bit more traditional, we'll say, than, uh, than Trinity, and I remember... Uh, my mom begging me not to make noise. <laughs> I remember my mom begging me to stay seated. Uh, and I remember there was this, I always thought it was cool that I would lay my head down. Uh, we'd, I'd want to sit in the balcony. I'd lay my head down on the uh, balcony railing and I could hear the bass of the organ pump through. I thought that was so cool. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm sure that there's lots of imagery that that, uh, you know, floods in your memory, whether it's, you know, for me, again, the, the images of the stained glass windows in that church. And, uh, you know, there's lots of kind of things that and maybe if you didn't grow up in that idea in those that context, maybe you have just kind of, you know, you visited a church or you, you know, looked at a Google image search. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you have there's images that kind of uh, you bring up. But. Uh, what I want to uh, say is when we typically think about tradition, what we typically think about is the types of programs that we have, the way our building looks, the order of our service, the songs we sing, the version of the Bible we use. It's all these, uh, you know, the things that we do. And what I want to challenge us this morning is that those things are probably actually better termed as rituals. And there's a reason for that. Is because rituals are the things we do, or the proper sequence of things we do, which involve gestures, words, and objects. It's this idea of this is the pattern of things that we play out. The pattern of things that we do. 
But tradition is a little different. Tradition is actually the belief system that is passed down from generation to generation. Now these two are often intertwined because the tradition should impact the ritual. Right? The tradition often was what established the ritual. But we are both, or we are all well aware that ritual can be performed without an understanding of the tradition or the belief system. And we can perpetuate ritual without an understanding of the tradition. And uh, so Paul is pointing here to something that is more than just the rituals of what we do. In fact, the reason we can say that with some pretty good certainty is that, again, we're in the very early stages of the formation of the church. Paul doesn't have a lot of rituals yet. Paul, if anything, he's kind of just holding over some of the Jewish tradition. But he's really focusing in on the belief system, the tradition of belief system that he wants to be passed down from generation to generation. To put it another way, to maybe crystallize it in your memory, I want to say this this morning, that tradition is the witness of proven experience. Tradition is the witness of proven experience. He says, you have heard from me. Paul is passing on the message from himself to Timothy. In fact, the message, he's saying, he's inferring, the message is trustworthy because I am trustworthy. I'm passing it on to you because, and you can know it's true because I've known it's true. And you know me. Saying, I have lived it. I know it's true. You can trust just as you trust me. Stephen uh, Covey in his book, The Speed of Trust, says, The first job of a leader at work or at home is to inspire trust. It's, the, it's to bring out the best in people by entrusting them with meaningful stewardships and to create an environment in which high trust interaction inspires creativity and possibility. Now, Stephen McCovey is obviously talking, if you know who he is, he's talking about the business world. He's talking about uh, this idea that uh, trust can either speed up an organization or it can really slow it down. And we have a lovely term for that we call due diligence, (laughs) right? Due diligence can really slow you down because you need to prove it if you don't have trust. But, uh, excuse me. But I, I want to say, I, I put, picked this uh, quote because I believe that it has something not just for the business world, it also has something for the church. It paints a picture of the, of the idea of tradition. That, the next gener- or that this generation would look at the past generation and said, I have seen this played out in your life. I have seen you experience it. I have seen you walk it. And I know it to be true because I know who you are. I can trust you. And so therefore I know that I can trust what you tell me. And it inspires the next generation on in that, that what he says, the creativity and possibility. Because we know we don't have to then do the legwork of proving it for ourselves. We can accept it based on the witness of the past experience. And I want to challenge us. This is not just on an individual level, but this is on a corporate level. It's when a group of people have all experienced something to be true and say, we have lived it. It is tested and we know that it's true based on our collective experience. 
And Paul says, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, we live in this view of this collective shared experience. We like to view salvation as this kind of isolated personal decision. But in truth, salvation is a community experience. Salvation is a community act. It is facilitated through community. It is proclaimed in community. It is confirmed by community. And it is lived out in community. Salvation inherently has a corporate identity. And Paul goes on to say, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is a reference back to verse 5 in which Paul says, I remember your genuine faith for you share the faith that was first filled, that, sorry, that first filled your grandmother, Louise, and your mother, Eunice. And I know that that same faith continues strong in you. See, there is a deposit here of generations of faith in Timothy's life. So you are connected, you personally are connected by faith to the generations that have gone before you. Even if your parents aren't believers, even if your kids aren't believers, you have been adopted into the family of God. I don't think it's an accident that Paul uses that terminology over and over again, the family of God. We are a part of something that's a little bit bigger than ourselves. You have been adopted and are part of a family with a faith legacy that stretches back thousands of years. See, tradition provides us with an unbroken connection through almost 2,000 years of the testimony of the saving power of God from now all the way back to the apostles themselves. We are plugged in to this vein of tradition that said this thing that we're experiencing, this faith that we are experiencing it, we know it to be true. It was true then and it's true now. It's the witness of proven experience through the ages. I still remember when I I was in youth group and my youth pastor Uh, said to me this comment. He said, The church today is full of Timothys, but we are desperately lacking Pauls. See, nobody wants to be a Paul, and everybody wants to be a Timothy. Nobody wants to be the person on the giving end, on the mentoring end, on the investing of myself into someone else. We are more and more a culture that says, I want someone to feed me. I want to go to church to be fed. I want someone who's going to give me things. I want someone who's going to provide and care for me. We, and there's nothing wrong for that. There was a need for Timothy to be mentored by Paul. But what Paul is saying here, and later on in 2 Timothy, is he's saying, guess what? The time's coming where I'm no longer going to be with you. The good deposit that I have given to you is now yours. Now you need to pass it on to the next generation. What has been given to you and entrusted to you needs to be passed on. 
See, all of us must own the need to pass on our witness of truth to the next generation. We have to ask ourselves, will we bear the burden to pass along the stories of what we have experienced to be true? I think today being Father's Day offers us a a unique opportunity this morning as we close and as we think about what it means to live this passage passage out. At some point, hopefully today, probably today, for most of us, we will some way or another connect with either our dad or our children. And we will probably either maybe be seeing them or calling them on the phone, or if you're of a certain age, maybe they only get a text. But uh, at some point, we'll be connecting with them. Can I encourage you to take advantage of that connection today and be willing to share your experience of truth and also to ask to hear their experience of truth in your life. But see, this is not just a parenting issue. This is for all of us. We all have experiences. We all have testimonies. We all have gifts and abilities that not only the kingdom of God needs, but to be more specific, the next generation of the kingdom of God is in desperate need of. My prayer for this church is that, as I sa- I've said this multiple times about our youth, that my ceiling would be their floor. That the struggles that I have walked out and the experience that I have, they would not have to walk those same pitfalls. That they could hear the true experience of truth in my life, know it to be true. And so this Father's Day, I'm going to invite you this morning, why don't you stand with me, and we're going to join in this corporate prayer this morning. As we say, I have something to give to the next generation. I have something to receive from the past generation. And I have something to steward in the now. Why don't you join me as we pray. Thank you, God, for calling me and involving me in your story. Thank you for a generation before me that paved the way for my salvation. Thank you for a generation that will carry on the work of Christ after me. Thank you, God, for placing me in a local church with other believers that can support me and I can support them. Thank you for blessing me for my good and for the good of those around me. I believe that I have a story that needs to be shared with other Christians. The kingdom of God needs the gifts and abilities that God has blessed me with. I commit to sharing these stories, gifts, abilities, and experience with those around me. I commit to passing on to the next generation all that has been given to me. I bless the next generation, and I pray that they would see even greater things of the kingdom of God than I have. Amen.
Father, this morning as we reflect on this Father's Day, Father, we are so blessed. We honor those who have walked before us. The tradition of experience, the witness of proven experience that stretches all the way back to the apostles. We thank you that it has been entrusted to us. That we can be a part of what you have been doing from the beginning of time. Father, help us to be faithful with that call in our, all, in, in our life. And Father, help us to steward that call into the next generation. Help us to pass on what we have been entrusted with. In your holy name, amen.